0: We're starting a new teaching series today called Living on a Prayer. And I know what some of you are thinking, Bon Jovi, right? VH1 says Living on a Prayer was the number one song of the 1980s. And for some of us, that song brings back lots of memories, memories of big hair, painful memories of mullets, maybe parachute pants or leg warmers. For most people, though, Living on a Prayer means you're just about out of hope. You're on the edge. You've lost your job. You can't pay the mortgage. You've done everything you can do, and now you can't do anything but pray. Prayer is all you have left. But what if you really lived on a prayer? What if you lived your life through prayer? What if you could talk with God in such a way that you literally drew your life, your strength, your wisdom, your joy through prayer? Is that possible? Would you want it? In this series, we'll be studying a prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer Jesus used to teach his disciples how to pray. And for the next six weeks, we'll be taking a close look at each part of this prayer, asking what it teaches us about how we should pray. And we are going to see that God wants us to truly live on prayer. That prayer, which is just communicating with God, that prayer can be our life, our strength, the power by which we live. As we begin this series, I want to be clear who it's for and who it's not for. This series is for anyone who is ever dissatisfied with their prayer life, anyone who ever feels guilty about not praying enough, anyone who ever feels confused about how prayer works, anyone who even wonders if prayer works. And so just to be clear, this series is not for you if, if prayer comes easily for you, if your mind never wanders in prayer, If unanswered prayer never bothers you, if when someone cuts you off on their freeway, your reflex is just to pray blessing on them. If when you win $10 million in the lottery, your first response is to pray, God, thank you, and forgive me for praying the lottery. Uh, Please help me tie it to my church. You see, if you are a prayer ninja, a prayer Jedi warrior, a prayer MMA cage fighter, well, this series is not for you. This series is for the rest of us because it's a strange truth about us. To be human is to pray. In moments of great joy, great need, great fear, great guilt, great sadness, we speak to someone or something beyond ourselves. We cannot help it. To be human is to pray. And yet we often wonder: why is prayer so hard? Why, why am I so bad at it? What, what are the rules? Am, am I doing it wrong? Uh, I did my Ph.D. in historical theology, and I love church history. I I was doing some research this week, and I I read sermons and teachings on the Lord's Prayer from the 2nd and 3rd and 5th and 16th century. And it struck me that the same Lord's Prayer that we love and we say today has been cherished for 2,000 years now by people all over the world. I mean, think about what this means. This same prayer was prayed by Christ's followers when Rome fell, when the Black Plague swept across Europe at the height of the Renaissance and at the low of the World Wars. It's been prayed over the centuries all across Africa and Asia and South America in huge cities and in remote villages. It's been prayed in living rooms and in 12-step groups and by hospital beds for 2,000 years. This, this prayer has seen people through their most difficult hours, both personally and nationally. I mean, can you think of anything better to study right now in these chaotic, uncertain times than our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Almost everyone prays. According to a Brandeis University study, 90% of Americans already say they pray daily. But in 2020, it seems that number is going up. Back in March, according to analysis from 95 countries, the number, number of Google searches for prayer just skyrocketed. Recently, the Wall Street Journal had an article called The Science of Prayer, and this article quotes Harvard professor David Rosmarin, and he said that research shows that prayer can reduce anxiety and make you less negative and and less angry. And I think most all of us believe prayer is important, but I also know that most of us don't think we pray very effectively. One of the questions I get asked most often as a pastor is, how can I pray better? It's like, you know, pastor, I want to pray, but most of the time my prayer life is unsatisfying. How can I pray with with life and power? How can I see God work? That's actually the point of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. And one thing the disciples knew about Jesus was that he prayed. He prayed. I think that if you had asked the disciples, what's Jesus' secret? What enables him to live such an extraordinary life? I think if they had had to answer in one word, that word would have been prayer because no one ever prayed like Jesus. Prayer marked his life from beginning to end. He began his ministry with prayer Luke 3.21 says that when he was baptized, as he was praying, the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit came on him. He experiences God in prayer, and immediately he, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and prayer alone with God. Jesus prayed when his schedule got demanding. In Luke, 15, verses 5, uh, Luke 5, verses 15 and 16, we read that after he began his public ministry, the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus prayed when he had major decisions to make. Luke six twelve says, One of these days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. I mean, can you imagine what that night must have been like? And then when morning came, he, he called his disciples and he chose 12 apostles. What would it be like? If your major decisions were bathed in prayer like that. Jesus prayed when he was disappointed. Matthew 14 says that John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, was beheaded. And when Jesus heard the news, he withdrew to a solitary place to be alone with his father and pray. Jesus prayed when he was worried about his friends in Luke 22. 31 and 32, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to hear Jesus say, I prayed for you? Jesus prayed when he faced his ultimate challenge. Luke 22, 39 to 41 says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. In other words, this was a common practice for him. Luke says his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and he prayed. You see, from the beginning of his ministry right through to the end, his closest friends, his disciples had a front row seat to watch the greatest prayer who ever prayed. And they saw Jesus filled with peace and wisdom and spiritual power and grace when he prayed. When Jesus prayed, they saw things happen. One time in Luke 9, 29, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, his face was transformed and his clothing flashed like lightning. I mean, that ever happened to you while you're praying? I mean, you light up like a light bulb. You know what? This happened to Jesus, and his friends saw it, and they wanted to know God like that. And you know what? I think you do too, or you wouldn't be listening. You see, what we're going to talk about in this series is at the heart of what we long for most deeply, to know and experience God. Luke 11, 1 says, Jesus was praying in a certain place. His disciples were watching him, and one of them had an idea. What if Jesus could show them how to pray like he prayed? What if they could start praying like the master of prayer? And so one of his disciples, we don't know which one, got his courage up and said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's just what Jesus was waiting for. His greatest desire was to teach them to pray. He didn't want them to struggle with prayer. He doesn't want you to either. And so over the next six weeks... Jesus wants to teach you to pray. But I want to say this right now. You must make this request of Jesus. You personally, you yourself. And I'm asking you to ask Jesus starting today, Lord, teach me to pray. You must carve out time to do this, and he will. He is just waiting, but you have to enter into this practice. Otherwise, this is going to just be... It's six weeks of words. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he wasn't just giving them words to recite. This was the master of the art of prayer, opening the door to life with God. And what that means for us, South Winds, is that starting today, class is in session. We are going to join Jesus in the school of prayer. You and I will receive instruction from the master. To launch this, I want to ask that we say the Lord's Prayer together today. So if you haven't done it already, get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This prayer comes from the lips of Jesus. And we're supposed to pray this together sometimes. This prayer doesn't start out, my father. It begins, our father. So this is an act of worship, and it deserves our best. So as you pray right now, be mindful of each word, and and speak in a way that expresses your heart, because God really is listening. Let's pray together as jesus taught us to our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Wherever you are, I want you to turn to the person next to you right now and say, you prayed great. And so now during the next six weeks, we're going to master this prayer together. I'm going to teach on it, and I want to challenge you to make it part of your daily life. Today's talk is called The Name. And we're going to look today just at the first verse of Jesus' prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And we're going to see some basics here. We're going to get to more advanced stuff as we go on. But today, we'll start just with the basics, just the beginning intro stuff from the Master. As I mentioned earlier, almost all of us have problems when it comes to prayer. And maybe you can think about it this way. We often have a who problem. In other words, we get confused about who it is we're praying to, and people think maybe God's angry or disappointed with them. And and this who problem can keep us from mastering prayer. And then there is a a where problem. Where is God located? Often people think of God as being very far away and they think prayer is what we have to do to get his attention. And and sometimes the where problem keeps us from prayer. And finally, there's a a what problem. We're not always sure what we ought to pray about when we get around to praying. We're, We're not sure what God might be interested in or what good it does to ask. Now, these are real basic problems. And so today at the start of this prayer, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about these three problems, three basic truths for authentic life-shaping prayer. So first, authentic life-shaping prayer is always grounded in confidence in God's identity. Jesus begins This prayer with the words, Our Father. On Friday, theologian and author J.I. Packer died at the age of 93, and his best selling book, Knowing God, is one that I'd recommend to any Christ follower. Packer wrote that every Christ follower should remind themselves every day that I am a child of God and God is my Father he writes, say it over and over to yourself first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. See, that's where Jesus starts his teaching in the Lord's Prayer, and we see this even as Jesus sets this teaching up. If you look at the broader context in Matthew 6 and you go back several verses, you will see that the first thing Jesus does before he teaches his disciples how to pray is he tells them how not to pray. He talks about two mistakes most all of us have made. Look at Matthew 6 verse 5. It says, and when you pray, Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. What's Jesus getting at? This word hypocrite comes from the world of theater in Greek culture. It's about an actor. And Jesus says prayer is not a performance. It's not about impressing other people. It's certainly not about impressing God. In verse 6, Jesus says, But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Did you notice what word is repeated twice here? Father. We're going to get back to that. So second, Jesus next says, don't make prayer into a formula. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You know, many religions throughout history, most of them, in fact, have treated prayer like a magical incantation. And the idea has always been, if I do this, then I get that. If I know the right words to say, then prayer works. But Jesus is teaching here that prayer is not transactional. Prayer is relational. Transactional means you pay something to get something. And so many people see their relationship with God like that. If I go to church, if I read the Bible enough, if I give enough money, if I do enough good deeds, then I earn a blessing from God. That's transactional. But our faith is not transactional. It's relational. Our faith is based on the reality that God loves you unconditionally and infinitely already. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He already loves you unconditionally and infinitely like a father loves his beloved child. And this is why Jesus says this in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And again, we see the word father. And here's what I want you to see. In both of these cases, Jesus teaches us not to pray like this because... We have a father. In other words, we don't need to perform, we don't need to impress anyone in prayer. Why? Because we have a father who already loves us. We don't need to say our prayers just right or learn the magical secrets of prayer, otherwise, God won't listen. Why? We have a father who loves us. We're not praying to some impersonal power. We don't pray to the universe. We pray to our Father. And He is a loving Father who delights in you. I can illustrate it this way I'm a father. In fact, uh, here's our four kids and their spouses and their kids. And as a father, I am always so eager to hear from any of them. And anytime my phone buzzes or dings, I get a text or a call from one of my four kids. I drop everything it's Jared, it's Abby, it's Matthew, it's Lydia. And they may not be telling me something I haven't heard before. I don't care. It's them. I I love to hear from them because they're my children. And friends, that's exactly how God is with you. That's why Jesus says God already knows what you need. He knows everything happening in your life. But he loves to hear from you because it's you. And here's the point. You can write this down. Prayer begins in the context of a loving relationship. Now, there were records in the Old Testament of people using the image of a father to describe God. That had happened before, but there is no record of anyone ever coming to God in prayer and addressing him as father until Jesus did it. And then Jesus uses the Aramaic word Abba. It's a real tender word. Little children used it, and actually adults would use it too. It's not exactly like our word daddy, because it was an adult word as well as a child's word, but it was a very tender word. And there's no record of anyone coming to God in prayer and calling him that until Jesus. And Jesus not only does it, he invites us to do it. I mean, that's unbelievable. And so this means when you pray, you put everything else aside. You put aside your worries and fears. You put aside your guilt. You begin with the words, our Father. And I know so many people who, when they pray, their first thoughts are, I haven't prayed enough. Or I feel guilty over my prayerlessness or my life. Or I'm not sure this is going to do any good. Or I'm not sure I know how to pray right or I'm not sure I have enough time to do this adequately. You need to always know that those thoughts are from the evil one and they are designed to keep you from prayer and you must discipline yourself to not allow them to occupy your mind. You must set them aside and you must start with the name Father. And when you say that, this is God's heart as you come to him in prayer. God's heart is saying, this is my son. This is my daughter. I love it when you call me father. I love it when you tell me whatever is on your heart. And maybe you'll talk about sad things and maybe about joyful things. And maybe you'll want to express thanks. And maybe you'll need to confess. It doesn't really matter. Once we're face-to-face, we'll get around to everything we need to. I'll make sure of that. But I love these moments when you come to me in prayer. And so Jesus, the master of prayer, says, Start with these words, our Father, because that's the who of prayer. You know, what was Jesus' intent? I want you to look at this great statement. This is from the scholar Dallas Willard, and he says, Jesus' intent was to bring his disciples. His apprentices to the point where they dearly love and constantly delight in that heavenly father made real to earth in Jesus and are quite certain there is no catch, no limit to the goodness of his intentions or his power to carry them out. That's in his book, Divine Conspiracy. And that's what it means every time you say, Our Father. There there is the one that you're speaking to, and with him there is no catch. There is no limit to the goodness of his intentions or his power to carry them out. So Jesus says, take the time before you pray to get real clear on who it is you're praying to. Second thing we see is that authentic life-shaping prayer is also always motivated by awareness of God's presence. Jesus points us to the where question next, our father in heaven. Let me ask you a question. How far away is heaven? Farther than the moon? farther than the sun? I mean, how many miles to heaven? And you see, we have this problem, I think. We we tend to think of heaven as someplace out there, way out there, somewhere in outer space. And because we think like that, God can become remote or distant or hard to access. And therefore, we feel like we're alone much of the time. Sometimes we express that in an odd way. Sometimes people will say at the beginning of a worship service, God, today, as we come into your presence, and I sometimes imagine God saying, where do you think you've been? I read Psalm 139 in my devotionals this week. Familiar words, you probably know them. Verses 7 and 8 say, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. David the psalmist is just telling us that God is everywhere. Jesus told his disciples this, In Matthew 28 20, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm want to take a moment, just a moment, to tell you about the grammar in this part of the prayer where it says, our Father in heaven. The, the Greek word for heaven is, is We We get the name for our planet Uranus from that word. It, but here in the Lord's Prayer, it's actually in the plural forms. Literally, it says, our Father, the one in the heavens. And in the New Testament... The word heavens is used in a variety of ways. It's used for the atmosphere. It's used for the sky we look at. It's, it's also used for the air, the stuff we breathe, for what's right around us. It's that close. You know, sometimes we talk about something that appears out of thin air, like it's, it's right at hand. And I believe this is the sense Jesus intends in this prayer. When you say, our Father who is in the heavens, you're not saying our Father from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away You're saying our Father who is all around me, our Father who is closer than the air I breathe. You see, in heaven tells us that God is right here, right now. And because God is so close, I'm never alone. And because God is so close, that means anything I see, anything I experience can be a reminder that I can speak to the Father who is right here. My eyes can help me to pray. Here's another important point for a beginning session on mastering prayer. What posture do you use when you pray? I mean, what do you do with your eyes? What do you do with your body when you pray? In other words, what about the issue of body language in prayer? like many of you, I grew up in a tradition that always uses the phrase, every head bowed, every eye closed when we pray. I I say that as a pastor sometimes. And I used to think that that was like a rule of prayer. It's almost like we thought of God as real far away. So watching while you pray would be distracting. And maybe praying with your eyes open, that's kind of like cheating. You know, at a restaurant, you had to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed. And if a waitress saw you and you were embarrassed, well, that counted as suffering for righteousness sake. But it's interesting to pay attention to what the Bible shows us about Jesus' posture in prayer. We will read in the Bible, it'll say, he stood and he looked into the heavens. And maybe that means he looked up into the sky. Maybe that means he looked into the air all around him. There are records in scripture of different people praying as they stand As they kneel, as they lay prostrate on the ground, as they sit with their hands stretched out sometimes, with their faces lifted toward the sky or sometimes bowed down towards the earth. And the point of it is is body language is really an important part of communication. You know, people today who specialize in this will tell us actually most of communication is visual. It's body language. Sometimes when my parents were correcting me as a kid, I'd try to walk out of the room while they were talking and like I was sending a message by doing that. And then they would usually give me another message uh, in body language. Well, the point is use your posture Use your body to help you turn your mind and your heart towards God. See, when I confess, sometimes I'll have my head bowed and sometimes I'll kneel because that helps me to remember what I'm doing. When I worship, often I'll have my face lifted toward the sky because that just can remind me how big God is. When I ask for guidance, often I'll just hold my palms up like this. God, whatever you want, I'm open to you. Have you ever prayed for someone and looked them right in the eyes as you pray for them and you said, God, I'm so grateful for this brother, so grateful for this sister. God, would you just pour out great blessings on their life? You know, some real rich moments in prayer with another person can come like that. But one of the most memorable times of worship and adoration is just looking around at what God has done in creation. Anyone notice what day it is today? The Bible says, today is the day the Lord has made. It's God's day. So take a few moments on a summer day and just look at the beauty of creation and just say, God, what a wonderful God you are. How great must your plans be and your power to carry them out because that is our Father who is all around you, who is closer than the air you breathe. So that's the where issue. Where is our father? Well, he's right here, friends. He's right now. He's closer than the air I breathe. Third, the authentic life-shaping prayer always prioritizes God's holiness. And this is the what issue. What should we pray for? Now, I want to be real clear There is no concern you have, no matter how small, that God does not care about. There is no request you have, no matter how silly or trivial it might seem to you, that God doesn't want to hear. He wants you to pray about everything. He is concerned about everything. And we'll look at this more later on in this series, especially when we look at the request for our daily bread. But what I want to note right here at this point is the very first request that Jesus taught us to pray. Because he told us to pray Hallowed be your name. Now in the Bible, the name's never just a label for something. It's always a reflection of a person. It's a reflection of their character and their identity. And so Jesus says, hallow God's name. Jesus tells us we are to pray, hallowed be your name. Now this is a word we don't use a lot in our day. But hallowed means to attach appropriate value to something to give it the honor that it's due to recognize its worth, heard a story about attaching value that supposedly happened in San Francisco. This, this guy comes into an antique store, It's mostly filled with junk. and he was kind of an expert with antiques, and as he looked around on the floor, he noticed this cat drinking milk out of a saucer. But the saucer, he recognized, was actually from the Ming dynasty in China and was worth a fortune. And it's full of milk, and a cat is drinking out of it. And he thinks to himself, this is the opportunity of a lifetime because the owner obviously doesn't realize what he's got here. So he goes to the owner, and he says, you know, that's quite a remarkable cat you have. I'll give you $100 for your cat. And the owner said, well, you know, the cat isn't really worth anything, but we're kind of attached to it. The guy said, you know, I'll give you $100. The owner said, all right. And then the man said, I I need something to feed him from, so I'll give you another 10 bucks and I'll take that saucer. And the owner said, oh, well, I could never do that. That's actually from the Ming Dynasty in China, and it's worth a fortune. But it's the strangest thing. Ever since I started putting milk in it, I've sold 17 cats. You know, all of us are used to attaching value to things, especially in financial terms. And sometimes we'll see something of great worth, but people don't seem to recognize its value. And this is supremely true of God. And that was a sad thing to Jesus, and it should be to us as well. God's name, his person, character, heart, and intentions, it's not seen in our world for anything anywhere near its worth. We live in a world where God's name gets blasphemed and profaned, spoken casually at best millions of times every day all around the globe. And so Jesus says, make the first request in your prayer. Hallowed be your name. In other words, may the indescribable goodness of your person become so clear that you are regarded with unstinting affection and boundless love. That's what it means to hallow God's name. May people realize how worthy you are, God. Hallowed be your name. First, God, by me. See, for that to happen, first I must pray, our Father who's all around me, hallowed be your name in my life, in my heart. You know, one of God's great mysteries is that he has allowed the holiness of his name on this earth to be bound up with the character and conduct of his people, that's you and me. We are a reflection of the character of God in the eyes of a watching world. And so to pray, hallowed be your name, and to really mean it, not just to recite the words, it's to say, all right, God, I hereby turn from and I give up sin as best I can. God, I'm ready to do that with your help. To pray these words is to say, God, I will live each moment of my day in such a way, God, that you will be able to sign your name to my day. The truth is, when I hit this part of Jesus' prayer, very often I need to pray a prayer of confession. The truth is, God, all too often, you know this, God, other names dominate my day. Some other person, like a spouse or a boss, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or other gods named money or health or achievement. So once more, God, I come to you and I repent. But God, I don't come to you in my name. I come to you in Jesus' name. In his name, I'm a child of the Father. Hallowed be the name of Jesus in my life. See, this means that true prayer begins when God is hallowed in our lives. And then we pray, not just hallowed be your name in my life, but hallowed be your name, Father, by every creature on the face of the earth. I mean, what would that be like for God's name to be hallowed by every living person? I mean, what kind of world would this be? Friends, that's what we're praying for when we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. And you know, that's really what evangelism is all about. It's about expanding the number of people who will hallow God's name. And when someone's life turns around like that and they begin to hallow God's name, that is a miraculous thing. That's a subject for another day. See, that's, that's the beginning of this prayer. That's what Jesus starts to teach us. He begins by teaching us that authentic, life-shaping prayer is always grounded in who God is, the Father we dearly love and who constantly delights in us. It's always motivated by where God is, that he's always all around me, closer than the air I breathe. And it's always focused on what God prioritizes, his holiness, that this whole earth would come to treasure and honor God, starting with me. Now, over the next several weeks, with God's help, we are going to go deep into the depths of the greatest prayer ever prayed. And if you sign on, I mean, if you truly join in, not only by hearing our Sunday teaching, but also by immersing yourself in prayer each day for the next six weeks, we will learn to pray like we have never prayed as a church before. We don't know know what's coming in the weeks ahead, but God does. And we can align ourselves with his kingdom and his will. We can grow to know his heart more deeply. We can be ready for whatever he has for us as we pray our Father in heaven. And if that happens, if we are all together praying like students of Jesus, this whole community of faith, this family of Christ followers learning to pray like the master, just imagine what might happen in this church and in your life. Just imagine how God will be honored. Would you join me as we pray together? We're going to end today like we began with the Lord's Prayer. And so, wherever you are, eyes open, following along with the words on the screen, or eyes up or eyes around, looking to your Father who loves you and who is closer than the air you breathe, our eyes closed and head bowed, reverently recognizing the awesome holiness of this Father God to whom we have the privilege of praying. Let's together pray the prayer Jesus gave us, the prayer that Jesus' people have been praying for 2,000 years now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father God is so good, isn't he? I want to challenge you. Pray through the Lord's Prayer every day this week. Pray Jesus' words lingering on them, adding whatever praises and petitions and intercessions you may have as God brings them to mind. Thank God that he loves you so much. He gave you a way to talk to him and to know him and and ask Jesus to teach you to pray as you're praying. I'm praying that you will have a week that is full of, of the Lord's love and the Lord's goodness. We will see you next Sunday.